0: from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Uncertainty overload, stock slip on recovery fears and political risk. Disney delays no big movie releases now until 2021. And California dreaming the governor calls for all cars to be zero emissions by 2035. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome, as always, to First Move. Coming up on the show today, we are showcasing the role of science and technology in helping improve lives. Queen Maxima of the Netherlands will join us to discuss how the United Nations is working with both the public and the private sector to foster greater financial inclusion around the world. Plus... I'll be speaking to the CEO of the scientific data analytics firm Affinity, a firm that tracks and compares standards in the global vaccine race. Those standards, of course, so important. But first, as always, U.S. futures turning sharply lower in the past hour. A continuation of Wednesday's stock market pullback. That set the mood, I think, across the Asia session overnight. You can see it. Hong Kong falling to four month lows. Tech once again led us lower. Apple Amazon and Netflix among the hardest hit, Tesla. In fact, as you can see, they're tumbling more than 10%. All are under pressure once again pre-market. The S&P approaching correction territory. So what do we say by that? We're near a 10% pullback from recent highs. There's no shortage of reasons either. High stock market valuations, concerns about a second wave of COVID infections, US election uncertainty too, and of course, fading hopes here in the United States, at least, of more financial support. Despite pleas from several Fed policymakers yesterday, In that vein, Goldman Sachs today slashing its fourth quarter U.S. growth forecasts in half, now expecting just a 3% annualized GDP growth number for the fourth quarter. As a result, all this amid words that a greater than expected 870,000 people signed up for first-time benefits last week in the United States, more than 26 million people still getting some form of government support. As a result, what about the U.K.? Well, today, announcing sweeping new measures to support workers and more supports needed here and elsewhere, too. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, the U.K. may have made a decision, but the United States simply can't, despite the pleas from Federal Reserve policymakers this week. It was actually Richard Clarida that coined it best, I think. He said the recovery is is happening robustly, but we're still in a deep hole, and that's the key. Can you continue to have that
1: recovery continue when you have so many people every week filing for first-time unemployment benefits? When you add to that 870,000, devastating, 870,000 first-time unemployment benefits, the people, uh, the self-employed people filing under pandemic insurance, you got 1.5 million people for the very first time going to their uh, state unemployment office or the unemployment office and asking for help. Uh, That is a real problem when you're trying to sustain a recovery here. So I'm worried about the jobs part of the recovery. You also have Congress that is going Going to be heading home until after the election without pandemic relief, without those shock absorbers, so many of these millions of families need. So we've heard from the Fed, we've heard from industries like airlines, small business, hotel, uh, anything related to travel. They are asking for help, saying that their industries are being uh, devastated. Millions of families who need help paying the bills and avoiding eviction, and still some talk that uh, the recovery is underway but fragile. It's it's a kind of a dangerous moment here. Throw in political uncertainty in Washington, and
0: uh, it's a little nerve-wracking, to be frank. Let's uh, throw that in then, because there are confusion and concerns about how long it takes to work out who the next president is going to be. And then President Trump last night throwing a, a level of confusion in the mix by seemingly refusing to hand over power. Just listen to this.
2: Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand
3: and, that, but people are rioting.
2: Do you uh, commit to making sure that and there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a, very trans, we'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better oh, than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else
0: this is unprecedented markets we know and we discuss on a regular basis don't like uncertainty i think there's a real nervousness everywhere outside of markets and beyond about what the next two three four months are going to bring
1: we know that there could not
0: be potentially there might not be a a
1: decision on election night We've seen that before over periods of history. You're not guaranteed to know who the new president will be on election night. It could take some time. You have a lot of people who are afraid of going to cast their ballot on Election Day because of the pandemic, and that's a justifiable fear depending on where you live. There are concerns about how rocky the process could be in some states. I will say at CNN.com, we have an entire voter uh, how-to guide for where you live and what the process is where you live. So people need to really do their homework and figure out how to cast their ballot. But a president casting doubt on the trust of the system and the validity of the process that is the bedrock of American democracy is just unheard of. I will say, back in 2000, Mm. there was a contested election, you remember. Markets handled it okay. But you had two leaders who were very careful in their words, two candidates, I should say, who were very careful in their words. Uh, and 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 there was trust, I think, in the process. Eventually, the Supreme Court would get to a decision and it was accepted. And there was a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, but to not commit to a peaceful transfer of power is certainly something that on Wall Street, uh, everyone's scratching their heads trying to figure out what would that look like for business, for how the country runs and for investors.
0: And in a pandemic. I read, I think it was an 8% decline in 2000 over the unresolved election. But you you make some great points. I mean, we do 8% pull back in a few days in these markets. But yeah, plenty of uncertainty. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Disney. Leaving the film industry on a cliffhanger, the entertainment titan pushing back the release of a whole slate of movies into 2021. Paul Malamonica, get my words out, joins us now. Paul, great to have you with us. It says a couple of things for me. One, about the ability during a pandemic to bring people back into cinemas. And two, perhaps a decision over how potent putting these releases on Disney Plus is. Let's talk about the first.
4: Yeah, I think that when you look at Disney's decision, I think Disney was probably watching like the rest of the industry very closely what was happening with Tenet, the Warner Brothers movie, our parent company owns that uh, studio, to see how it would do. And I think because there has been some concerns about whether or not people are really willing to go back to movie theaters just yet, you saw Warner Brothers already delay Wonder Woman 1984, a highly anticipated movie in its DC franchise from October of this year to Christmas. And I think that's really kind of set the stage for Disney to say, you know what, we aren't so sure even about November and we don't want to probably put Black Widow up against Wonder Woman. So we're going to move that all the way into May, which is kind of your traditional start of uh, the summer movie season anyway. And hopefully by next summer, things might be more normal.
0: Yeah, I mean, next summer is a long time for some of these uh, movie companies, some of these cinemas to uh, hang on in there, quite frankly. And you saw that stock reaction yesterday where they all tumbled. What does it also say, though, about Disney+, Plus, particularly in light of Mulan? We know it was a controversial movie, but we did see downloads. How is that done? And can we tell anything about this decision from what we saw with Mulan?
4: Yeah, I think really what it comes down to with Mulan is that Disney had been steadfast from the beginning saying that this was a one-time thing. Don't expect other highly anticipated theatrical releases to shift to Disney+, Plus, especially because you have people wondering, will people really want to spend $30 to rent a movie, especially if it's going to come on Disney+, Plus in a couple of months after that, for free. But even though Disney had been saying it wasn't going to make Black Widow and other movies in its slate, on Disney Plus the way it did with Milan, I think people still were hopeful because quite frankly, I want to see Black Widow. I don't want to necessarily go to a movie theater to see it anytime soon, but I probably would rent it on Disney Plus. And I think a lot of people felt the same way, but with Disney, Black Widow is the next phase of the highly anticipated Marvel Cinematic Universe where that franchise is heading and I think that, you know, even though Mulan is, uh, you know, a well-regarded movie based on a uh, beloved animated classic, it's not really in the same league, so to speak, as Marvel and that franchise with all those superheroes. So I can understand why Disney wants to keep Black Widow as a theatrical event if they can do that, hopefully, in May of 2021.
0: Yeah, we're not making the same comparison. And uh, quite frankly, we're watching a lot more TV during the pandemic than we ever have ever have before. So, we were allowed to be hopeful and now it's been vanquished. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the stories making headlines around the world. Protests overnight in cities across the United States over the death of Breonna Taylor. The Kentucky Attorney General announced no murder charges for any of the police officers involved in her killing in March. It's sparking outrage from her family and demonstrations demanding justice. Bryn dress reports. In cities across
2: the nation, the sound of Breonna Taylor's name echoing through the streets. What do we want? Justice! Here in Louisville, protesters crying out for justice from the day into the night, frustrated and outraged by a grand jury's decision to make no direct charges in the fatal police shooting of the 26-year-old EMT, killed in her home when three officers opened fire while executing a warrant during a narcotics investigation in March. And as some demonstrations turned chaotic, there, down, right there. two Louisville Metro Police officers were shot Wednesday night.
3: One is in alert and stable. The other officer is currently undergoing surgery and stable. We do have one suspect in custody.
2: None of the three Louisville Metro Police officers involved in Taylor's shooting face any charges related to her death. But former Detective Brett Hankinson faces three charges of wanton endangerment in the first degree for firing bullets into a neighboring apartment. Sergeant John Mattingly and Detective Miles Cosgrove were not indicted on any charges.
4: If we simply act on emotion or outrage, there is no justice. Mob justice is not justice. Brianna Taylor's death has become a part of a national story and conversation, but we must also remember the facts and the collection of evidence in this case are different than cases elsewhere in the country.
2: The Kentucky Attorney General says Mattingly and Cosgrove identified themselves before breaking down Taylor's door. Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, who was there with her that night, disputes that claim, saying he fired a warning shot because the police did not identify themselves.
1: They refused to answer when we yelled, who is it? 15 minutes later, Rihanna was dead from a hell of police gunfire.
2: The attorney general says an FBI analysis shows Cosgrove fired the shot that killed Taylor, but a state investigation was inconclusive on that point.
4: Because our investigation showed and the grand jury agreed that Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified in the return of deadly fire after having been fired upon by Kenneth Walker.
2: Mattingly's attorney writing in a statement, the system worked, adding these officers did not act in a reckless or unprofessional matter. But for Taylor's family, their attorneys say it's difficult to make sense of the ruling.
4: They're upset,
2: justifiably, uh, and, and, I'm, and we're, we're upset and outraged
0: at the, the, the decision that was made. Ben Jones is now from Louisville, Kentucky. Ben, great to have you with us. Facts justice, evidence, but clearly people aren't happy here, what next?
2: Well, what's next is probably, Julia, another night of protests. We're here at Jefferson Square Park, where the protests usually begin. This is the memorial that's been set up uh, for months now. And uh, there is still a curfew in this city today and tomorrow night at least. And as far as the investigation, well, people still want answers. That's why they're protesting. And uh, it's possible there may be more that comes to light. We know that there is a, a, a civil suit that has been filed by Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, the attorney. Any hopes there'll be some evidence, some information to come out of those proceedings as that makes its way through the courts. And then, of course, as you we mentioned in that piece, the Kentucky's governor has said that he wants the transcripts of the grand jury proceedings to be released if they do not, you know, conflict with the ongoing criminal case. Uh, so we'll see if that actually happens. Although it doesn't seem like it will, according to the AG's news conference yesterday. And then separately from that, there is an FBI investigation and an internal investigation at Louisville PD. So we'll see what comes out of Louisville in the coming months, uh, maybe even years. But I can tell you that on the ground, we know the people here, they're emotional, they're raw. You saw the two sh- the shootings of the two officers. Um, and it's going to be a long time before this place can heal, if it ever does. Julia?
0: Yeah, it's not over by any means. Bryn, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Bryn Gingras there. All right, does it come on First Move? How fintech could help the world's poorest people weather the pandemic? We're joined by Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, special advocate on behalf of the UN Secretary-General and clarity on a COVID vaccine. With every day bringing updates on trials and timelines, we'll get data analysis, what we know and what we don't. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The economic consequences of the pandemic have been felt all over the world, presenting huge challenges for millions, but especially the most vulnerable in society and those without access to the technologies that can help. Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands has been the UN Secretary General's Special Advisor on Financial Inclusion for Development since 2009. Her work has taken her to Ethiopia. Myanmar, Pakistan, South Africa, among other places. And the good news is huge progress has been made. Since 2011, the number of people with a financial account has grown by 1.2 billion people. And yet there are still 1.7 billion with no access to a traditional form of banking. Her Majesty Queen Maxima joins us now. Your Majesty, fantastic to have you on the show. We've spelled out the progress, but also the challenges. Could you just give us a sense of what you understand by financial inclusion and the benefits?
5: Well, thank you very much for having me today. Um, Yes, financial inclusion is something we have been working on for more than 10 years, and uh, we've actually seen a lot of progress. look like a railroad or look like a road it is the um, infrastructure that a country needs to have to be able to include everybody in an economic system is the opportunity to make payments in a very uh, cheap and efficient way is a way to actually make savings in a formal way for a rainy day or to invest in your children's education to be able to assure yourself against risks maybe health problems maybe an accident but above all also to be able to invest in opportunities and generate income. So um, we've actually been working very, very hard with many countries, uh, having more than 50 countries around the globe, having had strategies for financial inclusion and definitely technology is playing a very important role.
0: I mean, it's, it's advantages and tools that many of us, not all of us, I, I will admit, but many of us in the developed world simply take for granted. If we look at what happened in light of uh, COVID-19, A shift to digitization and those of us that could make digital payments did so. Others were left in incredibly vulnerable situations and circumstances. What have you seen and and who are the most vulnerable? Mm
5: -hmm. Well, certainly this what started as a health crisis. It ended up very quickly in an economic crisis and a social crisis. And uh, certainly in emerging countries, um, there is an issue of formality. The people that are working in the informal sector are extremely vulnerable because they do not have access to the formal things we all have and we take for granted, like you just said. And also they don't have access to government uh, safety nets. They don't have access to formal insurance services. And also within that, the daily wages, for example, were the first ones to lose their jobs. And within that, The groups that have actually suffered the most certainly are women. They really have taken the big most amount of the the burden on this issue. Smaller, medium-sized enterprises and, of course, sometimes farmers and rural people. What we've actually seen in terms of SMEs is, of course, they had to be shut down. Supply chains were actually completely disturbed. And we know from a survey that two-thirds of SMEs around the world have actually seen a decrease in their sales, some of them to nearly 80%. That meant that one third of them had to reduce workforce, which actually ends up in unemployment across the board. In case of women, this is even worse, you know, women that actually, they have to have their own business to be able to survive. We know in sub-Sahara Africa, for example, that 60% of the women-owned businesses have, a, have seen a complete loss of their income, three times more loss of income than men. So this is something we have to look into a lot more. And the issue with women as well is because they're 25% less likely to own a phone or have access to internet, they cannot really turn their businesses very quickly into a digital option, having more access to markets or being able to sell without contact. So they've actually suffered a lot more. So these issues have been um, something we've been seeing across the board. And certainly that's where governments have actually jumped in to make um, a lot of social payments uh, and programs so to, you know, being able to balance these problems.
0: I mean, that's just an astonishing statistic. Women, 25 percent less likely to own a phone or have Internet access. I think that that brings it home to to all of us in, in many ways. There are positive cases though and I do want to talk about this for a country that had some kind of platform or plan for promoting financial inclusion and that's Pakistan and how they handled what happened during Covid-19. Can you just explain what you saw there?
5: Well the issue is you know as you very well know technology plays a very important part in financial inclusion. You know, today you can actually receive a payment in your mobile phone and you can actually exchange that for money in your local merchant. You can actually save through it. You can actually get a credit through, you know, the amount of transactions you do, even if you do not have an asset as collateral. So these are actually extraordinary advancements. Now a country has to be able to allow to do that. They have to be able to allow innovation and it has to be safe and it has to be uh, able for everybody. So connectivity and having a smartphone or even having a phone is extremely important. Mm. Now, like I said before, 50 countries have been working very hard on their financial inclusion strategies, one of them being Pakistan. They've had and invested a lot in a robust ID system, identification system. Plus, they've actually changed the regulations that actually make it possible for people to receive money in their digital wallets and their phones. So um, since the start of the COVID uh, pandemic, they've actually been very fast in actually turning all the social programs into this digital payment and they've actually reached 17 million um, uh, people so which is actually incredible they haven't been able to do that before but also other countries even togo has had a fantastic uh, um, mechanism to actually give social payments to people in which 500,000 or more people have actually received it digitally but also countries like south africa have actually done the same so we've actually seen other countries have been investing in digital financial inclusion have been able to very quickly um, give emergency payments to the most vulnerable in their communities.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've spoken to many of these fintech players, these startups all over the world, Paytm in India, Pagga in Nigeria, um, and the private sector's understanding, trying to get these people access to financial tools, it's whether the government and regulators sort of understand that and they're all working together. Surely this is the critical piece here. It's everybody understanding it's a collaborative effort.
5: Absolutely. And uh, there is a role for everybody to have. Uh, we call them a set of public goods. You have to have connectivity. If only the urban areas have a connectivity, have a fold, and the rural areas do not have any. I mean, you know, it's... Talking about mobile money accessible for all is just uh, something that is not possible, right? (laughs) So, you know, the telecom companies together with the governments have to work together to make connectivity really a reality for everybody and for women. How do we actually get cheap handholds for women? You know, having a smartphone for women is not a luxury item anymore. Issues like these, issues like you know um, having fair competition, being able to have systems that are interoperable so the customers can actually have a freedom of choice from one system to the other with better prices and better options for them to have. So all these issues need to be done from the regulatory perspective, from the government side, also in cooperation with the private sector, because they also have to come up with the products that are right for people, because there's no use to have a bank account and they cannot really assess the needs of a woman in the rural areas, that they really she really needs to have very small, short-term credits just in case she had illiquid moments or you know very much um, you know, types of savings, uh, uh, products that incentivize her to save, At the moment that she doesn't have to pay school fees but when she has to pay school fees then she can actually disperse it so being mindful about people's needs and developing those products is also part of the private sector's role so the cooperation between the public and private sector is here essential i have a story to make we have a a group of ceos uh, of uh, cross-sector companies from consumer goods to technology to telecom to banking And what we've been doing is actually having them work together in certain markets to really digitize all the merchants in a given region so that all these mom and pop shops can actually receive mobile payments. They can actually uh, also to the suppliers, but also to the customers. And with that, they have actually much more access to credit and to insurance. And you see that the whole supply chain starts elevating itself in terms of quality. These type of corporations, not only with the public sector, but also the private sector among themselves is extremely important.
0: It actually gives me goosebumps hearing it. It's the idea that you actually tailor the products to the individual. And then it's not just about giving them financial access. It's actually about giving them access to products they can use. It's so important. Exactly. What we've seen in COVID as accelerated Digitization, the focus, it's emphasised the need. Just in terms of your work going forward and the UN's work, what's the plan now? How do we use this moment, harness this moment to accelerate the progress you've made?
5: Yeah, you know, funny enough, uh, 10 years ago, I really had to make the case why financial inclusion and why technology was so important. I don't think I have to do that anymore. <laughs> the issue is now the how, is to really help countries really scale up and really make this a reality and really getting the cooperation between the public and the private sector going. And sometimes it takes a little bit of figuring out how the supply chains work for example in the farming sectors in, you know in the rural sectors. what happens with merchants? you know how do we can we improve that side? How do we cater a lot more for women? I think we there's a lot more work we need to be done on the women needs on why do women use things and why they don't. Why? Um, how can we actually make them a lot more um, incentivized for, for them to save and take better credits and inform them better? I think there's a lot of things we have to learn also to actually cater this probably better for women. And in terms of SMEs, I think digitization will be an extremely important thing that we should be focusing on. Definitely.
0: Well, I'm enthused. I can see you're enthused. Hopefully uh, everyone else watching it, it will feel the same after this. Your Majesty, fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much and uh, I hope you come back soon. Thank you. all Thank you. Queen. Queen Maxima of the Netherlands there, the United Nations Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. First Move continues after the break. Stay with Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening balance. As expected, we have a lower open for US stocks with the greatest losses once again coming in the tech sector were off by around six tenths of one percent. Stocks falling as the US records a greater than expected jump in jobless claims last week, a rise in fact of 870,000 claims. We've also got the S&P 500 flirting with correction levels once again. The dollar has been a big beneficiary in fact of September's market volatility ticking higher once again today. We're currently trading near a two and a half month high. That's putting some pressure on gold prices which have fallen below that psychological level of $1,900 an ounce and we're off again some five-tenths of 1%. In the meantime, significant action from the Turkish central bank raising interest rates by two percentage points That's uh, to help curb inflation and has triggered a rally in the liras. You can see the dollar lower there, the Turkish lira, actually higher at this moment by some seven-tenths of 1%. Now, tech stocks may have had a great run since the March lows, but my next guest says trouble is brewing. A study conducted by Deutsche Bank revealing that in the United States, anger towards big tech is building, as is a huge digital racial gap. The predicted consequences are pretty terrifying. Here's just one. The study says the majority of black and Hispanic Americans could be shut out of 86% of jobs in America by 2045, so that's just one generation. Abdjit Walia is the Global Head of Technology Investment Strategy at Deutsche Bank and he joins me now. So, terrifying study, fantastic to have you on the show. I just want to start by asking you, when you talk to your clients of Deutsche Bank and you say, look, I'm really worried about the tech sector, how much pushback at this moment do you get?
3: Yes, uh, good to be here, Julia. So we wrote about since September 2nd, a few weeks ago, and uh, the study was looking at society and tech and obviously very different uh, indication in both. And we talked about tech uh, the, the, the most salient data point in tech we found in our study was that two out of three Americans uh, are unhappy with big tech. Um, and I think there was a lot of anger towards China early in the year. And we felt the, a lot of the resentment is going towards tech, given what's happening with privacy, given what's happening with antitrust. And as we head into elections and beyond, we believe a lot of the scrutiny in tech continues. Um, and you, obviously you're seeing that. Uh, most of the sentiment, I believe, when we talked about it, there was pushback on, on tech itself. You know, I felt people thought people maybe, maybe the uh, data is going to start to improve. Uh, but we've seen, I guess, the last couple of weeks, the action, uh, price action. There's been a lot, a lot of a lot of uh, negative towards big tech, and, and the stocks have actually underperformed. And we believe till elections, this will continue. Our view is, no matter what happens in November, big tech uh, is going to be looked at from various different areas to, in terms of what we can do to improve it. To, to find ways to make, 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 I guess, the e-commerce curve has come forward so fast, can we find ways to you know make society equal?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've seen tech stocks rise a dramatic amount since the lows back in March. We're talking about a bit of a pullback here, but it's minor relative to the gains that we've had. So when you turn around and say, actually two thirds of consumers in the United States are really angry with big tech, you can understand why people are going, what are you talking about?
3: absolutely. Because what's happened is, you know, the the, the tech itself has, has sucked up productivity from the bottom half uh from people who are not skilled and has and, and essentially has pulled it to to the top half, or maybe the top five percent. And and we can see that in the inflect in the way markets are acting and what's happening in the underlying economy. Uh, and that's what we are trying to say that as digitization mm. has a lot of be- has a lot of benefits there's also a, 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 a difficult underbelly which one has to tackle where large parts of society where there's unskilled and obviously in our study we look at people of colour with less training in digitization are struggling uh, and Covid was a litmus test to what digitization might look like in a generation from here.
0: And the curtain was drawn back I'm going to pull out another statistic you say blacks and Hispanics are 10 years behind whites In levels of broadband access, almost four times more blacks have poor tech connectivity than whites. And those kind of limitations for minority communities relative to others culminates in what you're saying in just one generation alone will mean 86 percent of those communities will be underprepared or locked out in just 20, 25 years.
3: Yes, you know as digitization works, it gets elliptical. You know, tech is always surprised the upside and things can happen faster than you think. And the gap is, is wide. And it's there in the urban cities uh, in terms of access to training, access to skills, access to connectivity. And if it's not addressed uh, and it stays exactly where it is, and, and we, we essentially take COVID and we project 25 years from now the same, same world, you have large swaths of society which will be underprepared.
0: So if I look at the gains that the five big tech stocks have made since the pandemic began, approaching $2 trillion, maybe even a bit more, give or take. How much should they be spending to try and tackle some of these issues, to deflect some of this anger that you're talking about?
3: Yeah, so I see it two ways. Um, most industries, in, in, if you go back to last couple of years, where they are in the, in the curve, where tech is, they've made the mistake of, of essentially not paying attention to, to the growth they've had and potentially you know other, what has been heard. I believe tech can do it differently. Tech has done so much for the, for the world, so much for the country. At this point, this is a problem which is well-defined. It's it's, it's it's fixable. If someone rolls up their sleeves, they have the logistics, they, ha- they have the know-how to come in. And you know, we, our plan is, we were talking about 15 billion, which is looking at families of color, black and Hispanic under 30,000, providing them with connectivity, providing the training and hardware for a period of five years. It starts to make a dent in the digital gap. Um, I believe tech does it. It's, it cascades into a bigger movement. Uh, so the two reasons I believe they can do it. One, of course, we talk about it getting unpopular. This is something which will bring a lot of goodwill in the country across the political spectrum to to help help the uh, the unskilled and families of color. The second, I believe, is this is a growing market. If I told you this is a market overseas of of at, at X million people which are untapped, don't have digitalization, don't have connectivity. You know, to, one would go into that country and, and get very aggressive and trying to tap into it. Well, that, that market exists here in the in, in U.S., in New York, in L.A., in Chicago, large, white society. And guess what? In 25 years from time, they will be the consumers. They will, the, the, the level of entrenchment you can gain by getting there now will repay back multifold in future.
0: Yes, we just had a conversation about the challenges in emerging markets and some uh, so-called developed markets have uh, big issues that they need to tackle as well. I think every lawmaker should read your report. It was great. Abjeet Walia, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Come back soon, please. The Global Head right. for Technology Investment Strategy at Deutsche Bank joining us there. All right. It's become a global competition, finding a vaccine for COVID-19. When we come back, we'll speak to an expert about the testing involved and when we should expect A proven vaccine based on the data. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Drug companies around the world are racing to complete clinical trials for their various coronavirus vaccine candidates. Now some experts are questioning whether the rush to make a vaccine available could threaten the integrity of the entire process. Amid the confusion, it's still not clear when an effective vaccine may be released or made available to the masses. Here's Dr. Fauci on that. My projection is that it likely would be November and December.
4: It is conceivable that it could be October. I mean, there's no doubt
0: that that could happen. I think more likely it would be November and December. And then at that point, if one or more vaccines reaches that critical point,
4: then the FDA will make their decision, and then we could start rolling out the vaccines.
0: Let's get the take of another expert on all the data out there, and there's plenty of it. Rasmus Beck Hansen joins us now. He's the CEO of Airfinity, a scientific data analytics company. So fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain briefly how Airfinity works. What data are you using, and how do you put it to use?
6: Hi Julia, it's great to be on. So, what we have a setup that listens to all pieces of inform- new science information out there globally, China, Russia, everywhere. We listen to journals, social media, preprints. You know, there's a flurry of new information. So we have, we we we, we use that to provide a comprehensive view that really helps decision makers make better decisions that are informed by the new science. And 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 we also do predictive models that help kind of forecast where science is going.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is an overwhelming amount of data out there. So even just being able to hone that and get a sense of that timetable is critical. Let's talk about that. Four companies, I think, keep being discussed, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Who's in the lead in terms of getting their vaccine trials finished and then approved, according to your analysis?
6: (laughs) Yeah, so so that's the question everyone is asking, right? So so from our, our data, we can we can see that Pfizer is really the front runner at the moment. I think the only the only company that has a realistic chance of meeting the FDA requirements before the U.S. presidential election is Pfizer. Uh, we we expect the first interim data coming out fairly soon and on Pfizer, and then astra Moderna uh, will come shortly after and then johnson johnson is a little bit later but you know we have we have 3 uh, 320 vaccines out there so there is a lot of more science to 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 be expected in 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 the coming uh, coming uh, months and and quarters and I think the, the speed of these trials is, is just incredible. Um, and it's it, we looked into the details of the protocols, so kind of how these trials are actually set up. And there's no doubt that they basically sped basically uh, set up to maximise speed at the expense of some other things. And I think that's one of the key things we really need to watch out for when we interpret the uh, the data that's coming out.
0: At the expense of what? Because I think this is key when we're looking at even Pfizer, because haven't they lowered the bar in terms of what they're actually looking for with respect to this virus
6: yeah i think i think that that's that's a fair point so so kind of simply put what they've decided to do they've decided to basically test against mild symptoms uh, of covid-19 so a cough a, a sore throat fever etc that counts as a case and it's somewhat similar for for the others And you can argue uh, that we actually, what we need, we need a vaccine that works against hospitalization, death, et cetera, not just the mild version, but the severe version. And that's really the compromise they made here. And I don't know if if it might be worth just like looking a little bit of how these uh, vaccine trials actually work. So you say you have a 60 uh, or 30,000 trial, you have 50,000 gets the vaccine. The other 50,000 are in the so-called placebo group. So they, they just get like salt water in. Currently in the U.S., we have an infection rate of 1.32%, which means that 1.32 people gets gets the virus daily out of 10,000. To calculate those numbers, then you would say that over a, let's say, 100-day period, you would have around uh, 200 cases with both mild and severe diseases in the placebo group and um, around 40 of those would have base severe diseases and around 160 would then have the mild version. FDA has said to approve a vaccine, we need we need to get to a threshold of minimum 150 cases in the placebo group, assuming an efficacy of 50%, I mean, 50% less in the vaccinated group. So you can see in this case, you would then actually be able to say, okay, from a, the perspective of a mild disease, that's fine. We can improve the vaccine. But if you needed 150 of the severely ill, hospitalized and, and potentially dead, you would have to wait much longer. And that's really, that's really the dilemma for these companies. That's really the kind of the key decisions that, that, are, that are being made. And I think that raises uh, uh, some, some very important questions also of the public's willingness to take a vaccine that's actually only been proven to work against the milder versions of, of the disease.
0: This is such an important point, because if you're challenging this vaccine in a relatively low infection environment, it's simply going to take longer to judge the placebo group relative to those that have been vaccinated. And this is a timing aspect, a critical timing aspect, in addition to, to your point that the degree of symptoms here that we're looking at. Let's talk yeah. China, Russia Very quickly. In terms of antibody production, what can you tell us about the efficacy of the Russian? Let's go for Sputnik, the Russian vaccine. What are your thoughts on this one?
6: Well, first of all, it's a great name, right? I think the other vaccine candidates to two similar in innovative names. No, uh, jokes aside, I think Sputnik is actually what we've seen from the phase one. It's very similar to the other candidates. It's not like it's significantly worse or better, works slightly better on some population groups than others. But it's really from the phase one trial, it's hard to say that Sputnik is, yeah, Either or, so I think it's it's a promising candidate. I think we also see a lot of promising candidates from China. China is moving really fast in this space, and they have generally kind of decided a slightly different strategy to the Western uh, uh, countries. They they've gone for what's called whole virus vaccines, which is more kind of the traditional approach, which which kind of from a production perspective probably be easier to scale up production because that's been done before. A lot of these genetic, the genetic vaccines have actually never been produced at scale before. So that's one of the kind of the key risk factors. So I think we we are probably underestimating a little bit what's happened in China. And and I think that they have they have a number of candidates that are very likely to come out soon and and maybe even before some of the Western, uh, the front runners in the uh, in the West
0: Interesting. So regulators need to be looking at everything. They just need to be provided enough data to make a judgment. As always, there's never enough time. Rasmus, come back and talk to me because I have plenty more questions uh, for you. So one of our experts, and I should make the point that you work for for governments, for corporations, for hedge funds, giving them this critical information too as this race goes on. Great to have you with us, the CEO of Thank there. Thank you. All right, when we come back, California Dreaming. Of a day without gasoline powered cars, it seems. It's coming faster, perhaps, than you might think. Perhaps. Detailed. California has just announced an ambitious new plan that would ban the sale of gasoline powered vehicles in the state by the year 2035. Paula Monica is back with us to discuss. We're keeping you busy today, Paul. Biggest car market in the United States, biggest EV market in the United States. Talk us through what the game plan is here.
4: Yeah, Gavin Newsom hoping that by 2035 new vehicles will be zero emissions. So that is obviously good news for the likes of Tesla and all the big automotive companies that are ramping up production of electric vehicles. The question, I think, is. Will this be legally challenged because there are concerns that maybe it's a little too ambitious to try over the next 15 years to completely scale back the uh, you know, gas guzzler type cars. And the other important thing to note, Julia, is that this is for new cars. So if you currently own in the state of California or plan to buy in the next you know, 10 years or so, a car that uh, is running on old fashioned fossil fuels you can still drive it. You're not going to be prohibited from driving it and you can still sell it as a used car as well. So this doesn't mean that gas guzzlers go away. It's just trying to stop and prevent the new sale of gas guzzling cars after 2035.
0: Okay, so this is a really important point. So if you're buying a second hand car, even up to that and beyond that point, it's okay, this is simply for new cars because the price point, at least today, is still too high for many people. It's just not viable.
4: Exactly, and that yeah. is something that Elon Musk has pointed out himself of with Tesla Battery Day announcement. <laughs> They're still relying on Panasonic and other manufacturers. They're trying to make more of their own batteries at massive scale. Hopefully, within the next 15 years, you have the cost of those batteries come down. And if that's the case, the Model S, Model X, whatever future Tesla models that come in the next 15 years and, you know, should be cheaper and maybe on a cost comparison, you know, more analogous to what you could buy in a similar, you know, gas guzzling car right now. That's the whole
0: I was it's just say, what a coincidence! Expensive. What a coincidence of timing! Twenty-five thousand dollar Tesla, and then we get this announcement from California today. Fantastic, Paula Monica! Thank you so much for that. That's it for first move. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe.